We're doing our summaries. And of course the good news is we're not in a rush. The bad news is we're not in a rush. <laughs> so we can take all the time in the world. And this is class four. This is class four. We did a, a brief history of Hasidus versus the Altarebe versus the Tanya. We talked about the Pasuk. It's near to you in, in your mouth, in your heart to do. And last week, of course, we talked about Tadek Benirosha, the righteous, the evil, and the intermediate, based on the fact that there are two basic definitions to these terms, the Talmudic definitions and the mystical definitions, which are based on the Zayar and supported by the Gemara and Brachas, as we talked about last week. We move on now, the next item. As you know, the Alter Rebbe prefers, chooses, to start the Tanya with the Gemara, with the Nigli, with the revealed dimension of the Taina, giving us traditional definitions for Tzadik Ben Nirosh. Tzadik means more than 50% good, Ben means Rosh means more than 50% evil, and Ben means 50-50. He works his way from the Talmud to the Pneumius, to the mystical dimension, which is primarily anchored in the Zohar, but is corroborated by a Gemara, that Tzadik means someone not who doesn't sin, but has no interest in sinning. He has no Yetzirah. A Bedi means someone who has an interest in sinning and doesn't sin at all. And Irasha means someone who has an interest in sinning and sins, even if it's quite infrequently. These are higher standards. And amongst other things, the Al-Tarebbe says that these two sets of definitions can be called Shema Mushal and Shema Tayyar. Borrowed names and precise names, descriptive names. Calling a person righteous because they've got 52% good or 51% good is not accurate. It's borrowed. We're using the word based on one criterion. If you're vindicated, if you win your case, you, you're, you're, as they say it in our culture, you're called not guilty. It's not the same thing as innocent. 52% good does not make you righteous. It makes you righteous in judgment. 52% and 53% evil doesn't make you evil. It makes you evil in judgment. And 50-50 approximately doesn't make you intermediate. You're intermediate in judgment. While the mystical definitions, the Zoyar's definitions, describe this is a righteous person, not a person who does righteous deeds. This is a righteous person. A Ben is an average person. Average means I have two tendencies, I have two inclinations, I have two dispositions, but I do what's good and I don't do what's evil. And of course, a Rasha means a person who's weak, even if the weakness emerges infrequently. So the Tanya begins with the Gemara, works its way to the Zoyar, and that's it. For the remainder of the book, we will not be revisiting the Shema Moshe. We're no longer going to go back to the Talmudic definitions. We're going to stick exclusively and entirely to the mystical definitions. We started off with the Gemara. We move on, which means the Talmud. We move on to the Zayar. And the Talmud is, for the sake of the book of Tanya, forgotten. We're going to deal only with the higher set of definitions. That a tzaddik means someone who's killed his Yetzir Hara. A Bainani is someone who has a Yetzirah and doesn't listen to the Yetzirah and so forth. Now, of course, the Al-Tarebbe has a lot of explaining to do. In other words, now that we've raised ourselves to this higher level, how do you explain these categories? How do you explain these possibilities? How do you explain the life of a Tzaddik? How do you explain the life of a Bainani? How do you explain how a person reaches such a status, such a point, such a place, where they never listen to the Yetzirah? They want to, but they don't. 
How do you explain a person who not only does not listen to the Yetzirah, is simply bored by the Yetzirah? He has no interest in what the Yetzirah is interested in. How does a person achieve such a status? How can such a thing be? So the Al-Tarebbe prefaces by introducing you to, I suppose, what we would call classic Kabbalistic ideas. And he begins by saying that every human being has two souls. <coughs> a person is not one person, a person is essentially two personalities, two souls. This foundation becomes the basis for explaining how these ideas can be, and, and, and they even to some degree explain how these ideas can be brought about. Every human being is a composite of two tendencies, two souls, two sources of life. And he employs the word nishama, but then he employs the word, employs the word nefesh. Nefesh means uh, a soul that gives life. A human being has two nefeshs, nefeshot, two uh, entities that provide um, life <coughs> to the person. Now, with the help of God, next week, we will be analyzing the concept of life as it's understood in Hasidus and Judaism and delving into the personalities of a nefesh. What does it mean, a living soul? But this week, we want to talk about the two souls. The godly soul versus the animal soul. We have two souls. One is called the godly soul, a nefesh al a godly soul. And that is called the nefesh al-bahami, an animal soul. A godly soul versus an animal soul. And just as it's hard for, uh, for us to fathom what it means a tzaddik in Tanya, it's even difficult for us to fathom what it means a bainani in Tanya, a person who, never, who has no interest in sin or a person who never sins. It's actually difficult for us to fathom these two souls. In other words, I would like you to so to speak, open up your minds to hear new ideas, really completely different uh, sentiments about what the possibility of a person is. These two souls are not just two. They're very, very different than our tendency, than our inclination, than, our, than certainly than the world in which we live is predisposed to assume. So you really have to, so to speak, allow your brain to open itself up to this perspective, this alternative perspective. And in Mitzvah Shem, you'll see as this class unfolds, this is a very, very different perspective. It's, it's really a very different perspective. And permit yourself to put yourself into the perspective that Tanya provides so that you can understand it. And after you're understanding it, of course, this is America, so of course you can't force anything on anybody. You'll decide if you agree with it, you don't agree with it. If you agree with it, it's good. If you don't agree with it, I'll... Uh, <laughs> you won't agree with it, and you'll take it from there. So we're going to begin. I want to talk to you about the two souls. Simple characteristics. The godly soul is selfless, visionary, and trusting. The animal soul is selfish, short-sighted, and worried, or doubting. And those two are very, very connected. Worried and doubting are not cousins. They're Siamese twins. They're, they're, 
They're very, very strongly genetically linked. The godly soul, I'm defining for you in my own form, but three definitions. It's selfless, visionary, and trusting. The animal soul is selfish, with zero vision, and um, worried, preoccupied. Selfish, doubting, and worried? Selfish, short-sighted. Short-sighted, no vision, and worry. Doubting and worry are, uh, are a tandem. And let me, help, let, me, let me illustrate this to you. The Tanya calls the second soul an animal soul. You have a godly soul and an animal soul. We'll get to the godly soul second, as the Altarebbe does. What do we know about animals? What do we know about animals? We have an animal soul. What do we know about animals? Now, there are some animals out there that are bad. They're evil. They're predatory. Now, of course, we all love animals, so the animals that kill to eat are really, really so wonderful and they're so sweet. This is just how they survive. Of course, God forbid we should say a negative word about an animal. That would be blasphemy. right? So we're going to be very, very carefully politically correct because we don't want to get fired. <laughs> but most animals are not predators. Most animals don't kill to eat. Um, at least many animals. They just, they just live. They eat grass, they eat browse, they eat leaves, they, they live. So what's so terrible about an animal? How terrible is it to identify a human being as saying they have animal instincts? I mean, if you study anthropology and the, you know, an evolutionary science, it's all predicated on the idea that we're just a more sophisticated animal. What is wrong with identifying a human being as an animal? So I begin like this, a story that happened to me, I'll never forget it. When I was a yeshiva bocher, we were about 21 or 22 years old, we went to a house of a, of a very important rabbi, a shliach, and we just marched into his house for like a, for two minutes, we had to pick something up, and we ended up spending all night in his home, it was one of the most important moments in our lives. That fabreng and that night literally changed some of our lives. In my group of yeshiva boys, all of us are shluchim are involved in the Rebbe's work. And several of them will tell you that it was that night that Pasha changed it. It was an incredible fabregen. Very moving. We sat there all night. It was very, very inspiring. And uh, <laughs> late in the night, when the energy was extremely uh, intense, one of his babies wakes up. He had a twin, he had a boy and a girl. Mom is three months old. He went upstairs and he brings his baby downstairs. Puts the baby down on his lap. And we were all singing. It was very, very full of energy. And he raises up this baby and he says, what do you think of this child? Now, you know, we're, we're typical young adults. We want to say what we think somebody else wants to hear. <laughs> you want to say the right thing. <laughs> so, so we're like waiting to figure out what it is we're supposed to say. So he goats us. He says, isn't the baby beautiful? <coughs> Sweet and harmless and so loving. And he carries on about how wonderful babies are. And babies are very wonderful. And when we finish, says, what do you think? So, of course, we said, of course, of course. <laughs> babies are wonderful, babies are sweet. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he had us exactly where, we want, where he wanted us. He says, this child is ich. Me. It's all about me. I'm hungry, I cry. I'm tired, I cry. I'm dirty, I cry. That's all. You want to love me? I love love. <laughs> and, of course, he made us look profoundly stupid and there was significant wisdom in what he said he wasn't trying to say that babies are bad but that's true 
the only reality in the life of a child is the child. It takes a long time for us to learn that first of all there are other people besides for ourselves and moreover the universe does not revolve around us. That takes a couple more years of maturing. There's children, that's why God made them. It, it, it takes a lot of growing up to be able to see past yourself on any level. Um, certainly on a level where it's, if it's not serving me it's also important. The animal soul is like an animal. Animals aren't bad. Animals aren't bad. There's nothing wrong with being a goat or a cow. Except that the entire reality of the animal is the animal. When I was a kid, and I was in yeshiva, so I had teachers, and they had elder bachim, older bachim, older yeshiva students who influenced our lives. And, and to a great degree, the the Bacharim, the older yeshiva students, influence in our lives was equal to, and in some cases surpassed, the influences of our teacher. So one of the boys told us a, a story. It's kind of silly, but it, it makes the point quite comprehensively. This, 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 the story goes like this. A giraffe meets a goat. And the difference between the giraffe and the goat, so goes the marshal. Don't take this too seriously. This is only <laughs> an analog invented to make a point is that the giraffe is able to see the sky. All the, the goat sees is the ground. So the giraffe is saying to this goat, have you ever seen the heavens? Have you ever seen the clouds? Have you ever seen the hills? And the trees? And the brooks and the streams and the rivers that are cascading down from the mountains into the valley and collecting in these huge rivers? And the goat says, no, but I'm not interested. Why aren't you interested? What do you mean? How does it taste? Can I eat it? No. But it appeal to your senses. It's beautiful. <coughs> and it has great, wonderful smells and great sound. It, it'll appeal to all of your senses. It'll, it'll be a great olfactory experience. So the giraffe says to the goat, raise your head and look up at the beautiful world. And the goat says, God made me with a neck bent downward. I can't look up. So the giraffe says, try, raise your head. Raise your head. See if you can look up and see the heavens and the clouds and the mountains and the trees and the flowers and the rivers. So the goat has to virtually break its neck to do something completely unnatural, to raise up its head and look at the beautiful world. So the goat successfully, after much effort, raises its head, looks at the beautiful world and looks around and says to the goat, wow, what, 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 what is it that you wanted me to see? He says, don't you see, look, the clouds, the sky, and the mountains, and the trees, and the river, don't you see it? He says, what? Look, that's the sky. See that blue? That's the sky. Of course, he asked him, what blue means? Yes. What are the clouds? And the goat said, I don't understand. I can't eat that. What difference does it make? I can't eat that. I can't eat beauty. How does it appeal to me? I'm that's the mush. Pardon? <laughs> but people are not supposed to be that way. But let's not discuss that. I can't eat that. The animal soul is not bad. She's an animal. What is the meaning of being an animal? It's very, very simple. Animals live to sustain themselves. They want to stay alive. They want to eat their, their pounds of brows and their, their, their gallons of water. They want to stay out of trouble. Right? Animals have three needs. To procreate, to eat, and not be eaten. That's life. That's its reality. It doesn't make an animal bad. It makes an animal, first of all, preoccupied with self. I exist for me. What is my existence about my existence about myself, my self-preservation? But there's a second characteristic of an animal. 
And the second characteristic of an animal is if you show them a beautiful the heavens, they say, I can't eat it. It doesn't mean anything to me. The animal soul is not a conscientious objector. The animal soul doesn't say, I'm a heretic, I'm a blasphemer, I'm an agnostic, I'm a skeptic. The animal soul says, spirituality bores me. God doesn't interest me. Afterlife, purpose, has no meaning to me. I can't eat it. That's the animal soul. So the animal soul is first of all a selfish being. The center of its reality is itself. And the animal soul is second of all an animal that lives for the here and the now. You know, animals were living 5,000 years ago in the same way they're living today. You know, human beings have built finer and finer homes and better and better accommodations and more sophisticated outfits. And animals are doing exactly the same thing. Why? We're managing. <laughs> it's okay as long as we can survive. Why do I have to build a nicer house if a cheap house will do? <laughs> the, the idea of improving something, of changing something, of going past themselves, is not part of the world of an animal. The animal's world is to take care of my needs and, uh, and anything beyond my immediate needs are of no concern of my own. The human animal is more sophisticated. The human animal wants to build nicer cars and better machines and faster computers and better clothing and bigger homes. But the human animal is an animal nevertheless because the center of its world is itself. Right? What do they call that, Russian? Capitalism. (laughs) And the human animal does not care about the transcendent. Human beings care about building better machines. But human, the human animal is not interested about where we came from or where we're going to and why we exist. God's biggest problem is not heretics and agnostics and skeptics. God's biggest problem is, I couldn't be botherism. The vast majority of people live in the modern world. There's so much going on in their lives, they simply don't have time. Religion, purpose, transcendence, seeing past the physical universe. Realizing that the things that are bigger and greater than the here and the now, it's not so much that they don't agree with it, or that they don't understand it, or that that they disagree with it, they simply could not be bothered. It's a non-issue to them. This is the nature of the human animal. The human animal is very self-centered, and the human animal says, you are boring me, please don't waste my time. And then of course, the third characteristic of the human animal is, we're always worried. We're always worried. What's going to happen if... What's going to happen when? We're worried and we are in doubt. We don't trust. Because this is the nature of our existence. Our existence is defined by material things. Our sense of reality is limited to what is materially real. And as a consequence, we live in a world that's fundamentally defined by uncertainty. The only thing we know for sure is that we don't know anything for sure. And the animal underscores this and emphasizes this, right? There is not a pessimist in the world who calls himself a pessimist. Every pessimist calls himself a realist. That's the animal soul. That's the animal soul. The animal's reality is itself, the here and the now, and what's going to happen if, that, that, that. My father told me the reason yeshiva, they had a a mashgiach, a smart Jew, 
who asked them a very, very dumb question. And you know, the dumb questions are the hard ones to answer. In the beginning of the Chumash, in the beginning of Genesis, Adam and Eve eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil by the coercion of the snake, and everybody gets in trouble. Right? Adam is punished, Eve is punished, and the snake is forget about it. When it comes to the serpent, when it comes to the snake, God really, really cuts its legs off. And, and one of the things that happens to the snake is, you will eat earth all the days of your life. Now, of course, last time I checked, uh, snakes don't eat earth. <laughs> but that doesn't tell you. So this, this mashgiach asked this talmidim, I don't understand, that's a curse. What greater blessing could there be than eating earth? You're never short of food. So he said, the snake eats earth, and he's always worried. What's it going to do after, after it eats up the entire earth? In other words, sometimes a person finds himself in a place of the greater security, but their tendency makes them unsettled. They worry, they have fear of absolutely nothing. These are the characteristics of the animal soul. Selfishness, no vision, no sense of transcendence, and preoccupation with uncertainty and doubt. I remember being 10 or 11 when Howard Hughes died. Remember Howard Hughes? He was the richest man in the world at one point. Howard Hughes was paranoid. Howard Hughes would not eat food unless someone tasted it first. Howard Hughes piloted his own plate. Howard Hughes would not shake people's hands without gloves. He was convinced that everybody wanted to kill him. So when he died, the Rebbe spoke about him by Fabrengen. And when the Rebbe spoke of Fabrengen, I sat in my father's lap and wrestled with my brother who sat on my father's other lap. I mean, I, I have, I, to me, it's the most incredible thing. We sat literally on my father's lap for five, six hours at a time. I, I mean, the Mesiris Nefesh, he wanted us at the Fabrengen. He wouldn't take up somebody else's. It's incredible to me, the Mesiris Nefesh, what fathers do for kids. It's amazing. But I remember I was sitting on my father's lap and my father says to me, listen. Because he felt that this I'd be able to understand. And the Rebbe talked about Howard Hughes. And he made the point of you can have all the money in the world and you have zero quality of life because you're afraid of your imaginary enemies. And when you're afraid of imaginary enemies, you create enemies. You don't allow yourself to live. These are the characteristics of the animal soul. Selfish, no vision, no sense of what's beyond, no interest in what is beyond, and constantly preoccupied and worried. And to be very blunt about it, that's all of us. I mean, most of us. That's, that's, that's being human. That's being a human being. But this is a godly soul. And it's the godly soul you have to wrap your hands around. Because the godly soul means we each have a tendency, a real source within our own personality that allows for us to be, number one, selfless. Selfless means we don't live for ourselves, we live for our purpose, live for our creator, live for God. And infinitely visionary. Our godly soul has a sense that there is more to the reality than what's here and that's now. In fact, when the godly soul looks at the physical world, all it's concerned with is where did it come from? What is it really? Where is the essence? Where is the truth of everything that I see? And the godly soul is connected to the Creator. The godly soul is, to use a more mystical form, connected to its own source. And as a consequence, the godly soul has trust. What is the trust? It trusts that life is not chaotic and random. It trusts that there's a plan and that there's a master and there's a governor and things happen in an order. It trusts 
that there are forces, or there is a force which is greater than itself and greater than its perception, that's the master of its world, who look after it. Frequently, things happen to the godly soul that the godly soul could question. But it's trust. The Hebrew word for trust, of course, is bitachon. Bitachon. What does bitachon mean? Trust. And bitachon also means security. The trust brings a sense of security. That's real. Right? <laughs> what does the pessimist call the optimist? The dreamer who's going to hurt himself. <laughs> Protect him from himself. <laughs> He's too optimistic. Yeah? Um, these, are the, these, are the, these are the tendencies of the godly soul. Because the godly soul is connected to God. And when one is connected to God consciously, their identity is defined by their purpose. I don't live for me, I live for why I am. Their identity is defined by the highest possible sense of what is real. And their identity is defined by their trust in their Creator. In other words, if you have a choice to define your life by, by food or by music, if you have an opportunity to define your life by music or by ideas, you have a choice. And the choice is, would you prefer a more basic form of entertainment and pleasure, or would you perform, prefer a more sublime, a more exalted, a more elevated definition of self? It's a choice. The animal soul will always choose the animal option, and the godly soul will always choose the godly option. The godly option will say, what's higher? What's more meaningful? What's truer? What's going to last longer? What's going to be here tomorrow? Not what's here right now. And as a consequence, the godly soul's tendency is to live for its purpose. The godly soul's tendency, I mean, its nature is to want to know not what I am and what do I see and what do I have, but what does it all mean and where does it all come from? And of course, the godly soul, therefore, has trust in the higher purpose. So we are two souls. Two souls. They're, they're both built into our psyche. They're both our personality. In other words, we're torn. Not torn only practically. We're not torn only behaviorally. The split or the potential split in the person is not simply defined by I can do this or I can do this. I am this and I am that. There's as much possibility within a person to be completely selfish and childish, babyish, concerned with nonsense and be pregnant by the worry as there is possibility within a person to live for a higher purpose, to be able to give and to trust Hashem. And these two personalities are literally us. And every moment of our lives, we are given an option, we're given choices that do not only define what we do, they're given they're choices that give us the option of choosing who we are. Every person has good moments. Every person has moments in their life, as corrupt as they may be, where kindness is a good idea, where charity is a good idea, where a higher definition is a good idea. And the best of us has moments in our lives when the animal takes over and we want to just be people on the most base level. And the reason for this is, is because each one of us has these two souls in us and these two souls never abandon us. These two souls never leave us. These two souls not just define what we do, these two souls define who we are okay so we're torn we're torn right I can be a spiritual me and I can be a realistic me <laughs> they're both me they're both real they're both 
when, when I choose to live a more sublime definition of self, that's reality. When I choose to define myself by more immediate, grat- immediately gratifying experiences of pleasure, that's real too. I define myself as that because we're actually a combination of both forces. Now, I want to explain this further. I want to elaborate on this issue of the two souls. I, I think I've made this quite clear. Could we agree? I want to elaborate on this further. I want to elaborate on this further by broadening the discussion beyond the scope of the soul. We're talking about people. And we're defining people by their personality, by their soul, by who they are. And we're establishing, we're arguing what the Tanya argues based on what's written in Kabbalistic works, that the human being is a combination of these two, of these two souls, of these two tendencies. But let's go beyond people. Let's stop talking about people. Let's talk about everything that is. The the reality. We're taught in Hasidus, based on Kabbalah, that just as there's two souls, there's two realities. The two realities are Kedusha and Klippa. Kedusha means holiness, and Klippa means the opposite of holiness. Alternative words for Kedusha and Klippa, another way of saying Kedusha and Klippa, holy and the opposite of holiness is sitra the kedusha the side of holiness and sitra achara the opposite the other side the opposite of holiness and i want to talk to you about these terms in other words let's go beyond the soul let's talk about the sense of what is going on there's kedusha and there's klipa now think about this what is kedusha holiness there's kedusha and there's klipa what does kedusha mean which means holiness so on page on the page that I handed you, on the left side of your page, I oh, there's twenty copies. Um, on the left side of your page, I define for you the two terms kedusha and klipa, holiness versus the opposite of holiness. Okay, so if you look on the page, the second line from the top. Okay, so I'm reading inside. Something is not considered holy unless there's a manifestation and an extension of the holiness of God. Or to use a more mystical term, for something to be holy, God's light has to be revealed. However, there's another condition. God will never manifest only on something which is humbled, subservient, in servitude of God. Whether it's actually humbled, as is the case with the angels, or in theory and possibility and potential, and human beings down here. We live in this world. Our souls exist within us. Our souls are, quote, in potential, subservient to God, although consciously we could do a little more in the subservience arena. What we just read is this. Holiness has two requirements. Servitude and enlightenment. Or servitude and manifestation. For something to be holy, it has to be bottled to God. We nullify to God. Nullify to God means simply, God created me, my reality is God, and because God created me and my reality is God, I, in my very existence, serve Him. When something is humble before God, 
God says, ah, there's room for me there. You've allowed me to enter, so God enters. The Kutzke Rebbe used to say, the middle of Kutzke used to say, where is God? And he answered, wherever you allow him to be. How do you allow God to be? By being humble. So the definition of holiness means that God is able to express himself. And the prerequisite, what allows for God to express himself, is the humility of the creation. Bittle before God. Now, think about what I just said. For something to be holy, it has to be totally nullified, totally subservient to God. Does that sound radical, or does that sound reasonable? It sounds radical. You're still thinking, you're honest. As people, as human beings, our tendency is, listen, I'll pray, I'll do good deeds, but leave me alone. I remember being a, a yeshiva bach, we went on Miftzayim, and we had a whole conversation with a person about doing a certain mitzvah. And that person said, well, listen, I don't mind God. I'll do many things, but this is none of God's business. <laughs> this is mine, and with all due respect to God, bug off. And I was a teenager, I was a kid at the time, and I, I, I never heard anybody talk so disrespectfully about God. Like, this is my space. I'll give God other things. I'll give him kosher. I'll give him maybe even Shabbos. But this space is not his business. Right? We are Americans. Or even Americanized. And the fundamental definition of being an American is mind your own business. I am a free person. I can do as I choose. Tanya says, holiness means the recognition I'm not a free person. And I cannot do what I wish. My reality is God. And I become holy by giving myself to God. How much? Entirely. Yes, from the perspective of the real world, that's very, very radical. But think about it from God's point of view. God's point of view is He's not only the creator of the world. He's the master of the world. And He's created it for a purpose. And that purpose is that the world should serve Him. So from His perspective from his vision, from his sense of what's real and what's important, creation should line up to serve him. The only reason they exist is for his servitude. Okay, he sprinkled in that interesting little creation called Yetzir Hara. <laughs> Evil inclination. Alternative tendencies. But the fundamental truth is that everything exists exists to serve Hashem. From his point of view, it's totally reasonable that we should exist entirely for his servitude. And when we have humility before God, we've invited God in, so He rests. And what? And He rests? And He rests. He manifests. I'll get to you in a moment. Which leads us to the alternative. What do you have to do to not be holy? <laughs> what do you have to do to be klipa? Right? First, let's define the term klipa. The literal translation of the word klipa means a peel or a shell. What is the intent? What is that word meant to indicate? What does it mean, the peel or the shell? It means very simply this. You have a reality, an entity, a thing that's being sustained and created by God Himself. Not was once created by God, was once infused with life by God, but at every single moment of its very existence, God is animating it. Every single second that it exists, it is so because God is giving it life. And its entire form, its entire definition, its entire reality is to deny that truth. 
Klipa means I cover over the truth of myself. Because if I expose the truth of myself, what I am changes radically. If a, if a being admits the degree to which it's dependent upon God, it can no longer be self-centered. It has to be God-centric because it's only, the only thing that's real is the inspiration and the life and the influence that God provides. So klipa means, in effect, living a lie. The center of my world is me. The truth of my world is God. And in order to sustain the sense of reality that the center of my world is me and not God, I have to suppress the truth. I have to sustain the lie. I have to feed the falsehood. Because if I permit the truth to emerge, that my reality is so completely dependent upon God that in fact I am simply an expression of Him, I can't be self-centered anymore. So klipa means I cover over, I suppress an inner truth. The inner truth is a complete dependency upon God. Klippas, I'm not going to let that emerge because I want to define myself by me rather than define myself by my purpose, rather than define myself by my creator in an order. So Klippa exists. This phenomena of the peel, so to speak, means I can't allow the real truth of what a being is to emerge so that I can sustain my own self-identity. That's what Klippa is. Kedusha means I recognize the truth. The truth is that not only God made me, God is making me. Not only do I come from God, I'm an expression of God, and I therefore I should be subservient to Him and allow Him to express Himself. My humility, my bitl, that's the Hebrew word, that's the magic Hasidic term, my subservience invites Him. And Klippe is simply saying, the center of my reality is me, the center of my reality is not God, and I sustain that by suppressing, by covering over this inner voice. Which leads us to the next point. And the next point is that to be sitra akharo, to be the opposite of holiness, you don't have to be bad. The opposite of kedusha is klipa. The opposite of holiness is this, this living a lie. The opposite of the side of kedusha is the other side. To be the other side, you don't have to be bad. You have to just be not good. There's a very, very big difference between bad and not good. The difference between bad and not good, bad is a, is a proactive, proactivity. Cruelty. Destruction. Evil. Not good means I don't define my life by doing good things. I define my life by me. This is a mystical definition. This is a Kabbalistic definition. We are, we are, we are on a higher plane. And on this higher plane, bad is not bad, bad is simply not good. In other words, if something is not subservient to God, if a being's center is itself, now how terrible is it for a being's center to be itself? How terrible would it be if I say, the center of my universe is me? And I'll be very blunt with you, okay? I'm a rabbi and I'm coming and I'm teaching you Tanya. I have to admit that as my religious condition stands at the moment, the center of my being is myself. I mean, I'll admit it. I mean, all of you are very pious and righteous, so you need to have one example of a person who's not so pious and righteous. So I'll use me as a model. Okay, now, is, am I happy about that? We're servants of God. We want, we wish, we could be bigger chassidim, more devout, more committed. But it's awesome, it's an awesome task. To live a life which is defined entirely by service of God is a very, very high level. Everybody understands that. 
But this is one of the messages of the Tanya. That on the higher plane, on the mystical plane, Klippa is not bad. It's simply not good. And if I may ask you to revisit the sheet. But now look at the top of the page. The very top of the page. Shezehu Pirush Lashen This is what defines the other side. The other side means the opposite of holiness. Pirush. It means Tzad Acher. The opposite side. Which is not the side of holiness. To be Klippa, you don't have to be bad. To be an animal, you don't have to be a predator. The animal soul is not bad. The animal soul is simply not good. Because for something to be holy, it requires two things. Number one, a manifestation of Hashem's holiness. But in order for Hashem's holiness to manifest, you need number two. God cannot manifest. have to be humble before God. Now, if I can ask you to scoot down a bunch of lines. Nine lines on top of the page, in the middle of the line. Aval, however, ma anything, she'ene bottle etzli is which is not subservient before God. Elohudava nifred b'fneyatzme, it's an entity unto itself. Now, if you know anything about gematrias and uh, relationships between languages, dava nifred b'fneyatzme, it has the gematria, the numerical equivalent in English of mind your own business. I put up my fence. I don't look by you. Don't look by me. What's wrong with being? What's wrong with being self-sufficient? What's wrong with being self-reliant? What's wrong with living my own life? It's not bad, but it's not in service. And on the mystical level, it's not sufficient to be not bad. You have to be good. Okay. And therefore, it can't get life directly from the holiness of God in a revealed way because it's an amendment of Matzav of Klippa. It's a condition of Klippa. Let me say what I just said in a third form. We started off the class talking about two souls, a godly soul and an animal soul. And I indicated to you that the, the difference between the godly soul and the animal soul is not that one is good and one is bad. The godly soul lives for a higher purpose. And the animal soul lives for a pragmatic purpose, a real purpose, reality, me. The godly soul is interested in what is transcendent and what is beyond. The animal soul lives for the here and the now. Which leads to the third characteristic, the animal soul is always worried. What am I going to do when I eat up the whole earth? What are we going to do if we overpopulate the earth with people and we destroy ecosystems? We always find something to worry about. And if we have nothing real to worry about, we invent things to worry about. It's part of our nature. Negativity is not only realism. It's a tendency. Pessimism is a tendency. The selfish person is fundamentally pessimistic because he's fundamentally self-absorbed. And when you're always self-absorbed and you don't have trust in God, you always find things to worry about. It's part of the need of people. People need to find things that are wrong. It's incredible. You know, I've had opportunity to speak to teenagers. <laughs> and I told them this, people need things that are wrong, and the one thing that's wrong in your life is that, that nothing is wrong in your life, and that's absolutely terrible. <laughs> How many emotionally disturbed kids do you have? What's the problem? They have no problem. So that's a very big problem. This is the animal soul's tendency. And the godly soul, because it's altruistic and selfless, and because it's visionary, and because it has trust, has the opposite characteristics. I want to give you the same in a different form. Okay? But I want to go back 
to the juxtaposition of Nigla versus Nista, the lower level of Teda versus the higher level of Teda. When you study Jewish law, when you study Judaism at a Talmudic level, you encounter three categories. Chayv, Isr, and Rishus. What you must do, what you're not allowed to do, and do as you please. Chayv, you must do certain things. You must do certain mitzvahs. Isr, you're not allowed to eat today. If you're not allowed to desecrate the Shabbos. You're not allowed to steal and kill and lie and cheat and hurt and abuse. But if it's kosher, why not? Who's it hurting? It's permitted. Let's enjoy. Who did God create the world for? If not for me. This is, this is Judaism on a basic plane. This is classic Judaism. In Judaism on a fundamental level, there is nothing wrong with enjoying life. And it's true. There is nothing wrong with enjoying life. However, when you study the reality from a mystical perspective, you get a much more severe criterion I don't only mean severe negative. <laughs> I mean severe exact, demanding. When you look at Judaism through a prism of Kabbalah, you learn that not this, there's no three things, only two things. Is it serving God or is it not serving God? Conversation over. The idea that if it's permitted, I can do what I wish, works in Halacha, works in Talmud, doesn't work in Kabbalah. In Kabbalah, if it's not serving God, it's serving me. And if it's serving me, it's Klippa. It's animal. In other words, in other words, there's an interesting Talmudic form which is mentioned in certain circumstances called Taira in heaven and Taira on earth. What's the difference between Taira on earth and Taira in heaven? Taira on earth accepts the reality, the point of view, the perspective, the limitations of earthlings. Tight on earth says certain things you must do, certain things you're not allowed to do, and everything else do and live with. But there's something called Tayyid Bashmam, a mystical Tayyid. Tayyid that studied in the higher worlds. Tayyid that studied in the higher world speaks of higher truths. And Tayyid that speaks of higher truths introduces you to much more ideal standards. Including this question. Tayyid in heaven says, God created a world to serve him. You either serve him or you don't. So it's a very, very severe standard. But it's a true standard. I, I believe that now is your turn. Let me make my point. So think about what we, just, we discussed over the last 45 minutes. We talked about an animal versus a godly soul. We talked about Klippa versus Kedusha. And we're talking about two perspectives, a lower perspective, where much of what goes on is to our discretion, and a higher perspective that's so, quote, black and white. If it's not good, it's evil. Now, I'm not trying to frighten you away, really. <laughs> the Altarebbe does that fine on his own. <laughs> I'm trying to show you what the, the, the Tanya is trying to uh, acclimate us, recondition, reposition us. The Tanya is not trying to teach us new ideas alone. The Tanya is trying to refocus our sense of reality. Tanya is not being unrealistic. Tanya is not being brutal. But the Tanya is saying, I want you to define yourself by including in your definition of real God. You don't do God a favor when you do a mitzvah, as many people believe. 
You're doing yourself a favor. Because this is your existence. And the Altarab is, I want to recondition your sense of what's going on in our lives based on the incorporation, the inclusiveness, the including God in our reality. And on this basis, the Altarab introduced us to these two souls. The animal soul and the godly soul. The animal soul is a normal person. That's what it is. <laughs> animal is a normal person. And the godly soul has no self. It's entire reality for the sake of Hashem. Please. I just had a thought as you were speaking that uh, there is no such thing as not serving God. We all serve God. It's just some of us do it consciously and some of us do it unconsciously. Okay. But we define... So it is all for us. All for us. It's like you either dance or you're being danced. So why don't you say it's all for God? Why don't you say it's all for us? Uh, from his perspective, I'm saying it's all for us. Because either way, you're serving God. Okay, he needs Klippa in the world, right? You, well, you see, there is a phenomenon called free will. And this is where this discussion comes to a head. We're talking about choices. We're talking about priorities. We're talking about value systems. And when you incorporate choice and value systems and priorities and attitudes, ethos, attitudes, um, there's a lot of possibilities, a lot of options open to us. These two choices are really more philosophical than practical. I mean, for a person to reach a place where they live a godly life, guess what? That's called tzaddik. And we can't even relate to Benini. You understand? But at least to understand that this is where up is, and this is where down is, philosophically, in other words, ideologically, we should understand the point of view of Pnimi Zatayra, of the Tanya, is it, it changes our sense of what it means. We're studying Tayra, we're doing mitzvahs, we're serving God as a whole new meaning. A whole new perspective. And the perspective alone is worthwhile. Now I want to bring another word into this discourse. Which is, which is a, a very, very important word in modern, in modern theoretical sciences, philosophical sciences, uh, you know, social sciences and anthropology and things of this sort. And that is altruism. Does altruism exist? Um, can there be altruism? And ultimately, is there altruism? Altruism means when somebody does something with absolutely no sense, no tendency, no inclination toward reciprocity. I don't want anything back. I'm doing it just to do it. It's an interesting question. People who study animal behavior and human beings who are also animals, as we have just determined, right? The animal soul is an animal, just a little smarter, a little more involved, and therefore knows how to worry better, if you want to be honest. Have certain philosophical constants, have certain philosophical assumptions. <clears throat> Any person who's, who believes in evolution, in, in whatever form, there's all different types of evolution, believes one thing, that you're alive and the bones in the ground are the bones in the ground because you were more selfish. That's what it comes down to, right? Survival of the fittest. Um, uh, what do they call it? Natural selection. Natural selection. Survival of the fittest has to do with competing better. That's what the word they use. They use the word competing. Based on that assumption, 
looking at organisms, living things, from an evolutionary perspective, you must assert as a fundamental truth that the very definition of a living being is selfish. Think about it. The very definition, if you're alive, your genes are more selfish than the genes of those who have died because you have eaten and they were the eaten. Think about it. And this is an assumption that pervades all of these theoretical fields of reason. They study anthropology, they study evolution. And they come up with questions that are difficult to answer. Because there are many cases of altruism. Not only among human beings, there are cases of altruism in nature. There are animals who die, not just for their children, but for their kin, for their relatives, or for their species. And of course, animal biology should say, the center of the animal is itself, the proof that the center of the animal is itself is that the animal lives and is not dead. How can an animal be so selfless? How can there be altruism with animals? It defies the very, very law, the halacha, the first principle of evolution. So they've come up with all kinds of fancy ways of answering these questions. Such as, they call it uh, genetic preservation, or what's it's called sometimes reciprocal altruism, that means to say, if an animal dies to preserve its kin, they'll do the mathematics. This animal is represented by this baby. That child is 50% their genes, right? When is a child 50% somebody's genes? If they're a parent. Or this child is 25% their genes. When is a child 25% their genes? If they're an uncle or an aunt, if they're a sibling of either parent, and so forth. So there's all kinds of fancy scientific models that are explaining why we find altruism in the nature. And in fact, thank you very much, the very essence of this entire discussion is based on a simple assumption. Everything that exists is here because it's been more selfish than the things that are no longer here. You understand what I'm saying? So when we talk about the animal soul, and we define the animal soul as selfish and short-sighted and worried, guess what? That's exactly how evolutionists explain all living things. But this is where the plot thickens. Kabbalah argues that it's a godly soul. And the godly soul is not in heavens. It's part of our personality. It's part of the definition of us. And the godly soul is fundamentally altruistic. The godly soul is at the very core has the capacity, in fact, it exists in its entirety, to do things not for itself. Which is, of course, completely impossible. It's scientifically impossible within the framework of evolution. Right? If you, if you assume that the physical reality is simply, you know, biomass and electrical currents, if reality is simply defined by the perception of the world as we perceive it, there cannot be altruism. What about animals? And when you, uh, even amongst animals. They have a godly soul? Okay, leave, wait a minute. The, 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 the postulation, the, hypothet- the hypothetical analysis of the idea that somebody could do something and there's nothing in it for themselves defies the very, very nature of these sciences. Because these sciences are based on the assumption that everything is very, very selfish. 
And Taylor says there is godliness in this world. There's godliness within human beings. And because of the godliness in the human being, a human being can be absolutely altruistic. Do things, no reciprocity, not getting anything back. And of course, in the religious model, in Yiddishkeit, when you talk about altruism, you mean two things. Basically. Bein adam lachavero and bein adam lamakom. Between man and fellow means I do an act of kindness to somebody else and I will get nothing in return. And we all believe in Ashkach HaPratis in the hand of God and it fits right into what we just learned last Shabbos in Pashas Vayechi where Yankel Avinu is passing away and he says to his son Joseph I would like you to do for me chesed shalemes a kindness of truth. Explain all the commentaries. When you bury a dead person, you've done a kindness of truth because that dead person will never be able to repay it. It's an act of altruism. I get nothing in return. And Judaism believes as a core belief. And Kabbalah explains it as being the very nature of the godly soul. This entire reality is altruistic. Altruistic means I can do an act of kindness to you and there's nothing I'm going to get. Right? You talk about people who saved Jews during the Holocaust. And in some cases paid with their lives. Right? And of course some will tell you, well, they were planning to get this back, or that back, or the other back. And in some cases it was simply acts of altruism. Altruism means this is just the right thing. It's what you have to do. And also, between man and God, that's the same truth. People serve God. People do mitzvahs, study Torah, pray. Many people do these things for various self-serving purposes. Whatever they may be, I get gratification from Judaism. I want to be rewarded for Judaism. I want to get Ganadin. But there is a notion of L'shem Shemaim that I serve God just for God's sake. There's no interest in myself. And in Judaism, this is a core belief. It's a fundamental belief that a human being has the capacity for altruism. So when you appreciate this perspective, this point of view, you understand that the animal soul that we're defining is essentially how the world defines itself and that the world defines animals as well as human beings. And in Kabbalah and in Yiddishkeit, we add, you should know there is truth. Truth not in God and in Taita, but in people. People have the capacity to do things, to live a life which is defined by the truth, and not by self-interest. Now again, if, if you were anthropologist, you'd be screaming at me, you'd, you'd make more noise than the, the construction people were making upstairs. Okay, but this is, this is the core belief of Yiddishkeit. That there is a capacity within human beings to serve God just for the sake of God or to do something for another human being just for the sake of that other human being. Now, in as much as animals are concerned, animals don't have a godly soul, I agree. And Torah would therefore maintain the argument that you hear in, in, you know, in the evolutionary philosophies that uh, it's reciprocal. In other words, when an animal does something, they're getting something back, always. Not always getting something back personally, but as they call it in the evolutionary science, they're getting something back genetically. But Taita makes a separation between human beings and animals and insists that within the human condition, there is godliness. Godliness, I don't mean potential godliness. There's potential godliness in everything. There's actual godliness. There's manifest godliness, which gives us the possibility, gives us the option, gives us the choice of living altruistic lives, just for the sake of the truth. So life, according to the Tanya, now, becomes a struggle between these two souls. 
It's not simply a matter of doing a mitzvah, doing an Aveda. Sinning or not sinning. Following the commandments or not following the commandments. Those are behavioral criteria. It's not simply a matter of who, what you do. It's a matter of how you define yourself. What are you? The center of the animal is the animal. It can't be escaped. That's why the animal exists. Because he's competed better than the animal that's been eaten. And the center of the human being, the center of the godly soul is God. And we experience these two souls, encounter them intermittently or intermingled, and we struggle to define ourselves. Right? If we get too holy, we'll get taken advantage of. Everybody knows that. <laughs> if we get too selfish, people are not going to like us. So it's good to be a little bit pious and righteous. So we struggle. Not about whether to do right or to wrong, whether to be an animal or to be godly, to be a human being. And according to Hasidus, this is real. It's real within the personality, within the essence, within the mahus, definition of a person. Which leads us to another point which is mentioned in our chapter, at the end of chapter 1 in Tanya, which is considered by some matter, uh, uh, issue of some controversy, where the Altareva makes the following proposal. He says we have an animal soul. The animal soul is as we've defined him. Selfish, short-sighted, and preoccupied with self. Worried. And doubt. Because the animal soul has these characteristics, a variety of different negative traits emanate from this animal. We're going to touch, we're going to touch on them, at least in brief, and momentarily. But the animal soul of a Jew, argues the Alter Rebbe, has some light has some goodness. The animal soul of the Jew comes from something called noiga. Noiga means a klipa. And everybody knows what the word klipa means by now. I have to suppress the truth to maintain my identity. Remember? Klipa means if I expose the truth, I lose my identity. My identity is that the center of my universe is myself. If I expose my dependency upon God, I can no longer consider the center of the universe myself. The klipa of a Jew is called noiga. Noiga means has some light. And on this basis, the al says something quite radical. And that is that altruism by a Jew can even come from the animal soul, not only from the godly soul. In a Jew, kindness can be unconditional, can be non-reciprocal, and it's coming from the animal soul. The godly soul has no self. The godly soul's very basic definition is altruistic. But because the godly soul of a Yid comes from Klippas Neuge, from a more enlightened Klipp, in other words, even though I have to suppress the truth to sustain my own self-existence, my own self-identity, the truth is closer to the surface. So the Alter Rebbe says, it's conceivable that even the animal soul within the Jew <coughs> and the righteous Gentiles go under the same category. Since the Klipp is Neuge, there can be altruism that comes from the animal soul alone. You can do acts of kindness and they're motivated by your animal soul because the animal soul has goodness within its possibility. And because of the goodness within its possibility, there can be altruistic, altruistic acts of goodness come from the animal soul in the relationship between man and his fellow, not in the relationship between man and God. In other words, the animal soul is not going to be so altruistic that you're going to die for God. The animal soul will be so altruistic that you'll die for a fellow, another human being. So there are two issues here. Okay, the second one is really a detail, but there are two issues here. First, understand that 
Taylor's definition of the animal soul is actually our definition of being a person. Human beings are just more evolved animals. That's the standard model. And animals exist because they've survived, they've survived because they've competed, and therefore, in the scientific language, it's genetically predisposed to self-centeredness. Our genes make us selfish, because if our genes hadn't made us selfish, our genes would have been worn out a long time ago. In other words, the definition in the tiny of the animal soul is how the world understands survival. And Kabbalah Hasidah says there's a godly soul. It's entirely altruistic. And then adds another point that in a person whose klipe is noiga is a more is a closer is a closer relationship to light, even the animal soul can have altruistic expressions. A person's animal soul can do acts of kindness and compassion that are completely non-reciprocal. I will get nothing back in return. Now before we finish the class, I just want to focus you on the text of the page that I handed you, on the right side of the page. Go ahead. Um, I feel like Tzadikim don't have Yetzirah, so they don't have a freedom of choice. They have nothing to choose with. They only have good. And Roshayim have only have bad, so they don't have a freedom of choice either. And only the ones who have people no longer have a choice, that means. Because we can either transform into good or to evil. Am I understanding this correctly? You're not. No. Because most Tzadikim are imperfect. Imperfect means that they do have a Yetzirah. But that the Yetzirah, it's subservient on the practical level. But not on the spiritual level. And what you're learning tonight is one simple thing. Tzaddikim are not defined by what they do. Tzaddikim are defined by who they are. And an imperfect tzaddik, there's evil in his subconscious, but it's leaning, compromises the altruism of that tzaddik relative to that tzaddik's own potential. And that's his test, and that's his challenge, and that's where his choices are. He's not getting, he's not getting points for putting on the film. He's getting points for such things as being critical of himself and tolerant of others, for example. And a Russia, to be a Russia that has only evil, that's a very, very extreme. That's a Russia without any guilt. Russia, any, any, okay, find that that's not a normal, that's called a perfect Russia. Most of the tribe are not on that level. As far as the perfect Tadak and the perfect Russia, they also have free will for other reasons. We'll leave that for a different time. But if we didn't have free will, we would not exist. The specifics are discussions for a variety of different occasions, but that's the short truth. Someone wanted to say something? So I want to show you what Dr. Rebbe does here. We spent an hour talking about these two souls, the animal soul and the godly soul. I compared it to Kaddish, Kedusha, and Klippa. I introduced you to the two levels, Chayv, Rishus, Iser, versus you know, serving Hashem and not serving Hashem. We went through a lot of different ideas, but you got a sense of what the Tanya is doing. Tanya says, I want to recondition your brain. I want to reposition you. I want to fix you. You should have a sense of what's real. The physical world and the physical world's definition of what people and what animals are is half. There's a godly half. Not in that silos, not in soft, not in some spiritual place. Here, there's a godly soul within each one of us. But the Alter Rebbe talks about the animal soul. And he introduces us to a variety of different animal characteristics. 
that I feel are useful and interesting to mention because to so many of us, so many of these things are quite relevant. So I want to begin on the right side of the sheet that I handed you. I guess it's seven lines from the top or six lines from the top. He's talking about the animal versus the godly soul. And he makes a point, you'll see it later on in chapter 9, we'll get to it in lecture number, I don't know what, that the seat of the animal soul is in the heart and the blood. It's passionate. The seat of the divine soul is in the mind, in a cooler part of the body, where there's less passion. But he makes the argument that the animal soul has to do with the blood. And he says, Umimena, and from her, seven lines from the top, Boys emanate kol hamidis rois, all negative character traits. Now, some of these character traits are quite negative. And some of the character traits are just nothing. But the Tanya calls them negative. The reason the Tanya calls them negative is because the Tanya is centered on this sense. What is the center? The center is between animal and man, animal and God. Animal means it's about me. Man or God means it's about a higher purpose, about God. When that is your center, even such things as selfishness are evil. And he explains, May from the four evil elements that comprise the animal. So we're not going to go into what these four elements mean and how they're relevant. That's for homework. But he specifically, for you with me, you have the place to the He focuses on the various characteristics of the animal soul. Kasvagaiva. Anger and arrogance. Anger and pompousness. Everybody knows what anger is, I reckon. <laughs> Conceit, arrogance. Arrogance is not the same thing as a healthy, healthy self-esteem. Arrogance is actually a symptom of a poor self-esteem. And arrogance has to be defined. Arrogance doesn't mean I'm proud of myself. Arrogance means that in order for me to maintain my own self, sense of self, I must build walls that separate me from other people. You can find people who are extremely confident and they're not arrogant at all. You can find people who seem very subservient and they're so busy with themselves, they're so self-absorbed, they're so arrogant, it's incredible. What's the definition? When a person is inviting, includes other people, that's a humble person. When a person is phobic, right, is repellent, pushes away other people, that's self-preservation, that's arrogance. Gaiva should not be defined by how it looks. Some of the people with the, what seems to be the most haughty are actually quite humble. And some people look quite humble. Their humility is another expression of their own self, self-centeredness, their own ego. The way to measure gaiva is not by how it looks, but whether it divides or unites. Think about it. Says the Rebbe, Kaiv Kas and Gaiva, anger and conceit. May say the age come from the element of fire, because their tendency is upward as fire rises. And the desire for pleasure. May say the Mayim comes from the element of water. Water is the source of all pleasures. Now, what's wrong with pleasure? What's wrong with pleasure? If I am a pleasure seeker, if I like to indulge, I'm a bad guy. It's coming from the water element within my animal soul. And of course the answer is there's nothing wrong with pleasure. But there's nothing right about it either. Pleasure is good if the pleasure serves a higher purpose. When pleasure is an end in itself, it's ultimately stale. 
when pleasure helps me serve Hashem, that becomes a very, very positive thing. And in the form of the Tanya, for something to be good, it's not enough that it isn't bad, it has to serve a higher purpose. The halalus, frivolousness, the velitonus, and cynicism, the hispidus, and boastfulness, and gossip and nonsense. We say that comes the element of wind. Now, what's wrong with gossip? There's some gossipists in America paid millions of dollars for their nonsense. Yeah. It's nothing. Cynicism, frivolousness, lightheartedness. You know, just just being out of control, boasting, showing off, which is a very, very, very strong part of the American culture. Everything is. You do the smallest good thing, and you have been in a hundred newspapers and six interviews, and one has to talk about you. What did you do? <laughs> I helped an old lady cross the street. <laughs> We're such a showy civilization. It's clipper, it's nothing, it's ruach. It has no substance, it's wind. You help an old lady cross the street, and the reward for helping an old lady cross the street is that you helped an old lady cross the street, period. And this is the most devastating of all laziness and sadness offer the element of earth and this is what we suffer with you know we've got other issues but our issues is not that we enjoy steak our issues is that we're weak relative to our own expectations of ourselves that's called laziness and sadness laziness and sadness can be argued on two sides of the same coin sadness creates laziness and laziness is an expression laziness is not an expression of choice Laziness is an expression of not being able to choose. It's not a bad choice, it's a non-choice. And that's rooted in sadness. It comes from the element of offer, why? Because earth is heavy. And we all have the possibility of being heavy, a burden on ourselves. But then he concludes, even good character traits, which exists in the nature of the animal soul within the Jew. Like compassion and kindness, Boys, mimena, come from the animal soul because the Jewish animal soul has a potential for altruism. Okay? So, what did we learn tonight? Two souls. These two souls are as far away from one another as they could possibly be. And neither of them is actually bad in the conventional sense of the word. The animal soul is not a killer. The animal soul is just competing and the godly soul is in service. And you, you, I'm sure you understand how controversial a position this is from a psychological perspective. And it's the foundation of how Kabbalah defines a Jew, a human being. You have a possibility to live for God. Not just because you can choose that, but because it's in your nature. The godliness of your nature. And with the help of God, next Monday, Mitzshem, the discussion that we're going to be having is going to be about the, the details, the personality of the, the souls themselves. Okay?